Welcome to Historical Fiction Unpacked. I'm your host, Allison Treat. Hello, readers. Today, I'm sharing a conversation I had with Crystal Cottle. Crystal is the author of Dangerously Good Historical Romance, with her work garnering awards from Romance Writers of America and ACFW. She is a stay-at-home mom and caregiver, and when she isn't writing, Crystal can be found playing board games with her family, drinking hot tea, or reading other great books at her home outside Cincinnati, Ohio. You can find out more and download a copy of her short story, Banking on Love, at crystalcoddle.com. During the interview, Crystal and I talk about how we met, and um, but to hear, I just want to note that I just have found her to be such a compassionate, loving person, and I think it's so amazing how like online friendships can turn into real friendships when you haven't even met the person in person, but that's just amazing to me, and I hope that you really enjoy this conversation with Crystal, because I certainly did, so Without further ado, here is my conversation with Crystal Cottle. Crystal, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real honor and pleasure. So, Oh, it's an honor to have you here. Your debut novel, Counterfeit Love, releases next week, March 15th. Can you tell me about this book? Yes. Yes, I can. <laughs> so, Good. Um, Counterfeit Love is a story of dangerous betrayals, malicious counterfeiters, and the second chance romance between an undercover Secret Service operative and his former fiance. On a faith level, Mm. it's also about wrestling with the question, can we really trust God and love him, even if everything in our lives feels ripped away from us? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just, I read Counterfeit Love. I I told you, I think on Facebook that I was in the middle of it and I finished it last, oh, last week sometime, I think. Um, and I really enjoyed it. There's so much action in this novel. Can you tell me what inspired you to write it? Um, I actually stumbled upon a book called True Detective Stories that was written by former Secret Service Chiefs, they are now called directors, but they were chiefs back then, published in the early 1900s. But all the cases were cases from the 1870s. And I just fell in love with those stories. And that really was the inspiration point for just even the research. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. Have you always loved those kind of detective stories? I have. I am not your typical girl. I've always read the action adventure, uh, like Three Musketeers. So I'm always searching out those kind of stories. And if it's in Mm -hmm. a really old cover from, well, early 20th century or before, I'm really interested. Oh, that's cool. So, um... This novel is set in Cincinnati, which is close to where you live. I hope that's okay to say. Yeah, it is. Um, was it was it fun to bring your own city to life on the page? Absolutely. Even though it's like an old version of your own city, of course. It is. And it's so interesting with the research, just how much of Cincinnati is just gone. Like, Mm. There might be two or three actual places from my novel that you can still visit today. Everything else is gone. Um, 
I initially started the research because I'd moved up here when I moved my married my husband and I wanted to get to know the area because that just in order for a place to feel like home, I need to know the history behind it. And wow, just so much history has been lost, but it's so rich to read about. Yeah, that's cool. So where did you move from? Actually, only 50 miles south of here, um, Georgetown, Kentucky. Um, But you wouldn't believe the cultural difference. Like it was cultural shock to move 50 miles north. So tell me how you went about doing your research. What is that research and writing process like for you? Um, Initially, because it was set in Cincinnati and it started out as being written just for myself, I went to Mm. the historical societies. I um, went to the Cincinnati Public Library, which has a fantastic research area. I went to museums. I really, really dove into the history of Cincinnati. However, when it comes to the Secret Service, you would not believe how hard it is to find anything about the Secret Service predating the predating JFK, even though they Mm. started protecting the presidents in 1902. Um, So finding that information was incredibly difficult. And I ordered books. I did a lot of Google books online where they've scanned books in. Um, Thankfully, the Secret Service has archived digitally a lot of their case files and I was able to get online and read some of those, but they're like really hard to squint at JPEG files. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's a lot of work, but it's so much fun and I love it. Yes. Yeah. So did you do a lot of your research in the, before writing the actual book? Are you a plotter or a pantser? How do you work? Um, I really like to get a very foundational understanding of the history of an area, a time period, and the Secret Service before diving wholeheartedly into the story. But I tend to Mm -hmm. research as I go as well. And I'm totally not a plotter. I tried to be, (laughs) but it doesn't work because my characters laugh in my face and tell me, no, we're not doing that. (laughs) Yeah, I have the same problem. Yeah. So you brought up the Secret Service a couple times. So tell me about the Secret Service and what you learned. You said they didn't start protecting the president until 1902. Yes. So what was their role before that? Tell me everything you know about them. <laughs> well, we would be here for hours. <laughs> okay. Um, but Here's a few tidbits. <laughs> I love to talk about the Secret Service like oh, way, good. way too much. Um, it actually was authorized by Abraham Lincoln on the day he was oh, wow. on the day he was assassinated. Oh my goodness. Yeah, um it was actually several hours before he went to the Ford's Theater that he met with the Secretary of Treasury Hugh McCullough, I think is how you say his name, um because mm-hmm. he was concerned about the growing trouble counterfeiting was presenting to the currency and the nation's economy. It was a very fragile time in our nation's history. And at that time, about one third of all circulating currency was counterfeited. 
So he was begging for an organization to be developed that would solely focus on rooting out counterfeiters, destroying their operations, and helping to stabilize the economy of the United States through the removal of counterfeits. So, Yes. Really interesting. Um, It didn't take long for things to get expanded. In 1867, uh, they were expanded to detect persons perpetrating frauds against the government. So they investigated the Ku Klux Klan, non-conforming mm-hmm. distillers, smugglers, mail robbers, land frauds, all sorts of issues. Um, really fascinating. Just so much variety. And what's really challenging to wrap my head around is the majority of that time up to like, I think the 1890s, they had an average of like 25 operatives for the entire nation. Wow. Um, They could bring in assistant operatives who weren't really official operatives Mm -hmm. um, to help them, but they covered a lot of ground for just 25 individuals. Um, They also really, really struggled with autonomy as a law enforcement agency because they were not allowed to arrest people or search and obtain warrants and do searches without partnering with the local police or U.S. Marshals. They got around arrests by doing civil or citizens arrests, but they, they worked very, very closely with the local law enforcement in order to bring these people down. Like super fascinating. Like I said, I could spend hours. So I'm going to cut myself off there. (laughs) Okay. I'm curious though. And this is, um, you know, at the risk of showing my lack of knowledge Mm -hmm. about these organizations, but were was the Secret Service like a forerunner of the FBI and the CIA, or are they just completely unrelated? And Completely unrelated, um, although the Secret Service did get involved with World War I, too, and like helping all those different aspects. Their role has really expanded over time, but mm. they it took 30 to 40 years before they really came into their own. And they didn't even officially start protecting the president from an official capacity until after president McKinley's assassination in 1901. And I think 1902 is when they officially started protecting the president, but there was only two people on white house duty. Wow. So was that a reaction to Obviously, it must have been a reaction to McKinley's assassination. Yeah. Um, and, but do they still have other, other duties? Yes. Um, okay. So if you go to the Secret Service's website, even now today, they are still, they still have a huge focus on counterfeiting, um, identity oh. theft. They, they've transferred into a lot of the cyber things. Um, yeah, but they, yeah, there's so much more than just protecting the president. That is really only a very small part of their repertoire. Right. But I think that's what people think of when they think of the definitely. The it's why I yeah. was so excited to learn. Oh, my goodness. There's so much more than I ever dreamed. Yeah, that's neat. 
So then going back to Cincinnati history specifically, and you said there's a lot, a lot of the history has been, is just gone. Does that have anything to do with the historic floods that are mentioned in your book? Part of it, mostly it's actually just progress. I mean, people did Uh not value these historic mansions. And now the place where Teresa's family would have been is all torn out and it's hospitals. In Mm. fact, um, the hospital that I would take my mother-in-law to for doctor's appointments um, is right where her house would have been. I could look across the street and Burnett Woods is still there. So you can go Mm -hmm. and walk the trails there. Um, Spring Grove is right up the way. It's not too far. And it's really beautiful to walk through if you ever get the chance. That's the cemetery. That is the cemetery. Tell me, first tell me a little bit more about the floods. It was 1883 and 1884. How did they play into the novel? So these were both historic level floods. And the first time it came around in 1883, it just completely decimated the economy of Cincinnati. Entire businesses Mm -hmm. were washed out. Families lost homes. Just people were just still reeling and trying to get their feet back underneath them during that year of 1883. And for Teresa's family, that is where um, the final straw that broke the camel's back, I think is how that saying goes for their financial situation. Um, It is what pressed grandfather into choosing some less than desirable choices in how he would get out of debt Um, Mm. so that first flood really was a catalyst for that. But then the second flood, um, not only provided a wonderful, exciting climax, um, (laughs) it gave me an opportunity for Teresa to face one of her biggest fears, which is water. She almost drowned in her history. Mm. And so to be able to be forced to face water is it was kind of an exciting opportunity. Yeah. So tell me more about Spring Grove Cemetery also. Um, I think you learned some interesting things about that in your research. I love Spring Grove Cemetery. So one of my absolute favorite facts is there's a chapel in the cemetery called Norman Chapel. And in the very bottom basement or the basement of it, there used to be a jail. So if you went too fast in the cemetery, the guards could pull you over and arrest you and stick you in jail overnight. Oh my goodness. I would have so much fun if I worked as a guard there and I knew someone was in the jail. I would be fired probably for all the torment I would give people. (laughs) Wow. Um, It is Really fascinating, really beautiful. It was one of the first cemeteries to be turned into like an arboretum and botanical garden. Mm. People would go there for picnics. Um, Wow. But that was also kind of the Gilded Age, Victorian era kind of focus and entertainment. Um, Yes. Lots of beautiful, beautiful mausoleums. And the Dexter Mausoleum in particular is... um, Gothic cathedral looking building. And it's the setting of where Teresa runs into some bad guys. And it was also 
a past experience of first kiss with Broderick, which was fun. Um, right. But it's, it's just an interesting place and there's lots of lakes in it. And just, mm. it's such a beautiful, beautiful place. I forget how many acres it is, but it's gigantic. Yeah. I was going to say it must be quite large. Yeah. There are lots of lakes in it. Yeah. Throughout the course of this novel, you um, kind of brought this up earlier, but I love this theme, this thread that was kind of woven throughout the novel. And Teresa has various things kind of stripped away from her. And so as a result, she struggles with her faith in God. So can you tell me why you included this theme? And um, I guess we could call it the theme of even if. Yeah. Uh, And that's kind of the theme that I've gone with too. It wasn't originally part of my plan. I don't plan my spiritual threads for my books. I let God teach me through Mm -hmm. writing the stories. And unfortunately, through the writing of Counterfeit Love, I experienced the complete stripping of myself to the point that if you were to envision, I literally had this image in my head of a rope and all that was left was the silver thread and that silver thread was Jesus. I had Mm. nothing left. Mm. So that, that even if came out of that experience, that was my wrestle. And that's what Teresa wrestled with too. I really appreciated that also because I feel like a lot of kind of like pop culture gospel right now is almost like what God is going to do for us in Mm -hmm. life. (laughs) And it, it, kind of sets us up for a lot of um, questioning and disappointment when he either he does things or he allows things that are painful. Yeah. It, it's really difficult to wrap our minds around and I still struggle with it, but you, you get to this even if point where I call it your decision point, you're either going to choose whether or not you're going to love him and trust him, even if everything's gone, or you're going to choose to mm-hmm. turn your back on him. It, it's one of those, this, those faith points that just completely change your life. And once you walk through that and you've decided to follow and trust God, no matter what, it makes everything else that comes your direction just a little easier to swallow. Your faith is a lot stronger. Doesn't mean it's not unshakable, but it's right. It's you know you can lean into him and you can trust that he is there. Mm-hmm. Totally. So Teresa owns a printing press business, and um, you mentioned that this is connected to a ministry that you support. Yes. Can you tell me about that? Um, So the Bearing Precious Seeds ministry is a Bible printing ministry in Cincinnati, where I had the amazing blessing of going in with my small group and printing, I think we did like a thousand Bibles in an hour or something like that. Um, And they distribute these Bibles for free to missionaries. I mean, they're translated in 
tons of languages. I forget how many languages at this point. Um, yeah. Over like 130 countries, I think it is. Um, they also do tracks. Um, like if, if you're a business and you're wanting to give to first responders, they can make special covers and you can order them and distribute mm. them. So they do have things where you can pay and buy, but their main ministry is providing these free Bibles all around the world and giving access. Um, and it's all done out of a church. Uh, well, they have a printing building, but it's connected with a church. Um, right. So it's a really small operation for being such a big operation. Um, hmm. And it was just really fascinating on a personal level to go in and print these Bibles and look around and go, this is how the printing world has changed since Teresa had yes. did that. So different now. And it was so cool. I mean, I can't even, I got to see a, one of the big giant roll presses, which mm -hmm. At the time of Teresa's story, they had one steam press. So it helped me kind of envision how that worked. And I'm, I know it's different now, but it just, it just helps you see the magnitude of what that required. Yeah. So. Right. And this, I should have brought this up before, but, um, just talking about the Bible and printing Bibles reminds me of how we met, mm -hmm. um, that it was in, we were both doing the Bible recap last year in a, and we met through like Kim Duffy's Voxer group. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I love, um, I took a screenshot of when you reached out to me and said in the Voxer group, you said, are you the Allison treat from historical fiction unpacked? And I, I actually took a screenshot and sent it to like, my my friends and my family and just a couple different groups. And I was like, look guys, I made it. <laughs> people, are, people are asking if I'm that Allison treat. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. It, it was, it made my day. Oh, I'm so glad. I, I was blown away. I'm like, I'm, I'm talking with somebody I listened to on the radio. <laughs> right. So, I want to know a little bit about how you got started writing. Have you always loved to write? Writing has always been a part of me. Um, it was mm. my processing tool. Um, I had a challenging childhood that I would not change for the life of me, but mm. it, um, it was my means of survival. I loved yeah. reading and writing stories where the people were in far more peril and danger and struggles than I was facing so that mm -hmm. I knew I could face whatever I was going through. Um, wow. So for me, writing has always been a very personal processing sort of thing. And it's something I never actually wanted to pursue as a career or to be published. Um, so it's actually really scary for my book to go out there because you're seeing a piece of my brain and how I process um, so that's terrifying. So anyone who reads it, please give me grace. Um, <laughs> um, what really propelled me into the actual publishing industry is I'm a teacher at heart and I love to learn and grow, even if it's just for myself. And my husband 
sent me to a writing conference for my 30th birthday just because he Mm. knew it would be something I would enjoy. And I was all excited because I was like, I get to learn how to become a better writer. And the first thing that happened when I got there is God introduced me to Raylene Burke, who introduced me to ACFW. And that Mm -hmm. is a Christian fiction writers organization um, that provided a lot of education for me and a lot of contacts. And actually some of my deepest friendships have come out of ACFW. Um, Oh, that's great. That was an, its own answer to prayer. I prayed for 15 years to have Christian friends that I could just Mm. really lean into. I did not grow up in a Christian home. So Mm -hmm. that prayer was actually answered through this writing journey. Um, wow. But when I went to this conference, I had no desire to seek publishing. And Raylene actually introduced me to Hallie and Greg Bridgman. And mm-hmm. Greg is an amazing man who terrifies the snot out of me. <laughs> <laughs> he just, he has that personality that sets off some triggers in me. Um, I know he's a good man, so I'm not really afraid of him, but you can't really overcome some things easily. Right. And so I understand. And having met him, I, I get it. Yeah. So Raylene introduced me to Greg and Greg's first question is, well, are you looking into getting published? And I'm like, no, (laughs) he's like, why not? I'm like, cause I write for myself. Well, didn't God give you this story? Well, yeah. Well, then you should be putting it out there for others. I'm like, sure. Okay, bye. And ran away as fast as I could. Um, (laughs) All the other class, all the classes I wanted to attend at that particular conference on writing craft, except for one, ended up being canceled. Oh, my goodness. It's totally a God thing. All the classes I wanted on writing craft were gone. And it left me with only classes on publishing. (laughs) I love you, God. He is such, he's very stubborn and I'm glad he is because I'm stubborn too. Yeah. And um, he knows that I need walked into things that I can't just be tossed into it without some preparation. Mm. And so I left that conference with the feeling of God saying, I'm going to call you to publishing. And I fought him for six months, literally six months. I'm like, no, God, I do not want to do this. He wins every time. And so I joined ACFW and (laughs) I spent five years just solely focused on learning the writing craft. I am not Mm going to put my neck out there to an agent or a publisher until I feel like I've gone as far as I can go on my own. Right. And so I did that for a long time. Critique partners were amazing and helping to sharpen me. And in 2018, I went to the ACFW conference feeling like, okay, I've reached the point I'm going to pitch. So I pitched to Tamala Hancock Murray, Murray, Mm-hmm. And I actually turned the tables. I'm not recommending anyone do this, but instead of pitching to her, I asked her questions because I wanted to make <laughs> sure that if I wanted her as an agent, that we would mesh. 
Right. (laughs) So we only had like two minutes left to talk about my story. And she's like, just send it to me and we'll go from there. I'm like, okay, great, fine, whatever. And I sent it to her Christmas Eve that year. So I waited even longer after the conference. (laughs) Um, Like uh, ACFW is in September, right? Yes. Yes, it is. I drag my feet a lot, people. Um, Okay, me too. (laughs) And she held on to my manuscript for several months and then she offered me a contract. I'm one of those Mm. people that I was, I made the determination that if I'm going to do this, I'm going to shoot for the stars. And if I miss, I land on the moon. And if I miss the moon, I still land back on earth. Um, Right. (laughs) So I applied to one agent at a time and she was my first one. I did not get a rejection from an agent, which I'm in. That is crazy. It is super (laughs) crazy. Don't use me as a measuring stick because this has all been God and God being like, I'm going to make you do this whether or not you want to, and I'm not going to give you an excuse. Um, (laughs) So um, she then submitted my book out to multiple publishers and it sat for a year. We had literally reached the point of saying, you know what, let's just shove it aside and let's start getting something new out there. And Mm -hmm. right within a week or two of us saying that I got the call from her that Kriegel was interested and would be taking it to pub board and time passed and we got the call and I got the contract. Um, So I did get rejections from the other publishers. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's not that I haven't received rejection. Just not from agents. Just, just <laughs> not from agents. But still, with to get a contract within with your first book oh. that you submit within the first within a year of submission, that is astounding. Yeah. And it's not just that one is. book; it's three books. Right. So that's unusual. Totally, God. Right. Yes, and that's a great segue to what are you working on next. So no one told me when you enter this publishing industry and you have multiple contracts that you might juggle three books at once. So (laughs) um, I'm doing all the prep stuff for launching book one. I have just finished turning in edits for book two, which focuses on one of the secret service operatives, um, probably the least liked one. I blame God on this one too. Um, Andrew (laughs) Darlington, who's kind of a jerk face is what I like to describe him as Mm. in book one. Um, Yeah. But he gets his own story and. Oh my goodness. I, I really love his story. He, he's a lot more than what you see in book one. And it's, it's, it's really, really fascinating. I just. God really. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that he could be he's, intriguing. And that's book two. That is book is two. Okay. And now I'm working on book three, which is Josiah's story, Josiah Isaacs. Okay. And you see a little bit of him come out in each book. And so now I'm working yeah. on his story, and he is also surprising me. So. Wow, that's cool. Yeah. That's fun. I love when characters surprise you. (laughs) Um, So this is a question I ask all my guests. 
how do you think learning about history through story helps us approach life in the present? There's that famous saying of life repeat or history repeats itself. Um, mm-hmm. That I definitely feel is true. You see a lot of at least emotional reactions and even some political things kind of reoccur. And I think going back into history and seeing through story how people responded to those can help us learn from past mistakes. They can help us learn how to better respond to what we're facing. Mm -hmm. Um, And history is just such a fascinating thing because a lot of the times it feels like it's just straight, boring facts when you go through school. But when you read it in fiction, it becomes alive, it becomes personal, and you realize that each generation really isn't so different. We all face these same sort of struggles together. Um, like, yeah. right now, we are living in what's considered the second Gilded Age. And through my research, I've seen so many parallels it's just fascinating and it helps me process what we're going through now through a Mm -hmm. lens that is maybe less knee jerk reaction. Wow. I had not heard that, that we're, this is the second gilded age. That's interesting. I'm going to have to look, look into that more. Well, Crystal, this has been a great conversation. What is the best way for listeners to follow you? The best way is to actually go to my website, crystalcoddle.com, um, and you can connect to my social media that way. You can sign up for my newsletter. Um, I run a, a yearly reading challenge, so you can join that. Um, my website is really just the best homepage to connect with me. Mm, great. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much, Allison. And it was a true blessing. So my friends, make sure you get your copy of Counterfeit Love. You can get to it or get to Crystal's webpage and all her social media from my website or from the show notes, which can be found in your podcatcher or at allisontreat.com slash blog. That's A-L-I-S-O-N-T-R-E-A-T dot com slash blog. So I would be remiss if I didn't ask you also to follow this podcast or subscribe to it and to rate it and review it if you're enjoying it. I would love a five-star rating and review from you. That would really help other readers and lovers of historical fiction to find this podcast. Other ways to follow us are on our Facebook group, which is called Historical Fiction Unpacked Podcast Group. You can find it by searching for it on Facebook, or you can get to it from the show notes also. And we also have an Instagram page. So look those up and follow us. And as I've mentioned one or two times before, it is not free to have a podcast, and it also takes a lot of time and effort. So... I have a Patreon page where you can become a member and give every month for certain um, benefits, which one of them is that I will send you a monthly video review of the books that I'm reading. And there's even a level at which you will receive a new book every month. So check out those benefits at patreon.com slash Treat. Ah, 
one of our patrons, happens to be this week's author, Crystal Cottle. So thank you, Crystal, for being a patron of my work. I just really appreciate my patrons so much. And now let me leave you with a quote. My favorite thing about Crystal's book was the even if theme. So this quote is going to be about faith in God. It comes from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. God does not give us everything we want, but he does fulfill his promises, leading us along the best and straightest paths to himself. So my friends, may he lead you along the best and straightest paths to himself. And may you keep reading historical fiction. I will talk to you again next week. 